Welcome to the MS Gym Podcast, where we give you the tools to live life by design, not by diagnosis. I'm your host, Brooke Slick, and here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with our new co-host of the MS Gym Podcast, Jody Feltham. And I am so excited today. Not only are Jody and I, do we have in common that we are both uh, hosts of the podcast, but she and I are both veterans of HSCT, which is hematopoietic stem cell transplant, which we both had for our MS. The difference is Jody had hers done in Mexico and I had mine done in Russia. And today we're going to talk about the differences between the two treatments the two treatment facilities and the treatment at each facility um, and our experiences and how we chose to go to those places and all the good things. But first, I think for anybody who doesn't know what HSCT is, I'm going to read a little description here uh, that kind of breaks it down. And this is actually from the uh, National MS Society's website, who for for many years has kind of tiptoed on the sidelines of acknowledging HSCT as a formidable treatment for MS. But even as recently as a few weeks ago, uh, they published an article with their uh, insight on HSCT and kind of like embracing the fact that it is in fact a viable treatment for MS. And it was published in the Journal of American Medicine. So that's, that's a step in the right direction. So here's what they say, and it's pretty much what I would have said off the top of my head, but I just didn't want to mess it up. Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation reboots the immune system, which is responsible for damaging the brain and spinal cord in MS. In HSCT for MS, hematopoietic stem cells, that's stem cells from the pers that person's body, the person with the MS, are collected and stored prior to depleting which is another word for ablating the immune system using chemotherapy drugs. Chemo is the operative drug um, in this particular treatment. Then the stored stem cells, which in Mexico are not frozen, in Russia are frozen. Am I correct, Judy? Yeah, in Mexico they're not frozen. That's correct. They are then reintroduced to the body. That's considered transplant day, and they, over time, reconstitute the immune system. And when it reconstitutes it, and there's a much more technical term, and I'm not reading this off the, the MS Society website, it, it reconstitutes itself with no, no, no memory of having MS. Uh, the MS is, is no, potentially halted in its tracks. So when they say reboot, of course, that's just the easy way to say reconstituted or kind of reset of the immune system back to not recognizing MS. So your MS is no longer attacking your body. That's kind of a simpler way of putting it all. But today we're going to go down question by question, and Jody and I are each going to answer these sets of questions and what our experiences were at each of these facilities and just kind of like bounce off of each other. And uh, hopefully you all out there who have always wanted to know what it is. And more importantly, because Russia, Moscow, Russia, and Jody, were you treated in Puebla? 
I was in Monterey, actually. You were in Monterey. Okay. There are, there are two facilities. One's Puebla, Mexico. One's Monterey. So Jody was treated in Monterey. And people are constantly in the, the uh, you know, Facebook groups, private groups. Um, everybody's always comparing the two. So Jody and I are going to help you guys kind of sort it out today. So Jody, let's start off by asking you what time, type of MS do you have and when were you diagnosed? So I was uh, diagnosed uh, January 2010. It was a week after my 30th birthday. I got uh, the diagnosis. And at that point, I was, I was pretty much symptom-free. I had previous issues, but not at that moment. Um, diagnosed as uh, relapsing remitting MS. And since it's been almost 11 years, it, it transitioned probably from multiple changes in medications. It transitions probably in about 2017 that doctors kind of then label me as secondary progressive. Okay. Okay. And at that time, what was your EDSS, which is when we say EDSS score, that is a gauge of mobility. Um, that goes from zero to 10. So at the time of uh, my stem cell in um, October of 2018, it was, my EDSS at that point was 6.5, meaning uh, that I was using two trekking poles to move around, meaning that I was not able to walk unassisted. Okay. So that, and that's typically bilateral, isn't, don't they say it's yeah. Yeah. bilateral yeah. assistance? Yeah. Right. I think Six is if you're just using a cane or one, yes. but when you need bilateral, it's 6.5. Exactly. Exactly. I was diagnosed with relapsing remitting uh, MS in 2006, although my first symptom was optic neuritis in 2001. So I kind of went from that to four and a half-ish years of it remaining silent. Um, and then after many years of drugs, I went on to finally have HSCT in 2013 in Russia. And at the time, I also was anywhere on any given day, I fluctuated from five to five to six, five to six, 6.5. Well, actually not 6.5, six. And I only say that because I used to use one trekking pole. And that's, that's another important thing. In 2006, when I was diagnosed, I really didn't have a lot of symptoms either. Mine were, you know, something was going on with my lip and I had some, you know, balance issues, but, you know, I could still walk perfectly fine. You know, I could probably have even run at that time, but I, I was not a runner. Um, but anyway, by the time I got transplant, I had started using one trekking pole as like a cane because I thought that's all I needed. In hindsight, and because of insight from Coach Trevor, who is anti-cane and all about bilateral support by using trucking poles, I really should have been using two. But I, I was about a 5.5 to 6.5, really. But how did you find out about HSCT? You know, I, I had not heard of it um, much before. I think it, it was actually about a month after the MS gym opened. Um, so that was um, around June 2017. And it was actually um, from one of the co-hosts of the Coffee Chats who I've talked with before, uh, Deborah. Yeah. Uh, she told me about it because she was actually, she had just come back. And so there was, 
when I was fr- made friends with her on Facebook, she had no hair and she was styling the fun earrings and stuff like that. So she was a huge advocate of that. And the, the HSCT group on Facebook was actually a huge, uh, a huge part of the MS gym in the beginning. So I heard about it from her then. And at that point I was still working. I was still, uh, I was struggling at work. Um, and so I'm like, the thought of that wasn't even on the radar. And then probably three months after I was kind of uh, not able to work anymore. And then, and then it kind of became a thought, but it was kind of pushed off in my mind until about a year after I had first heard about it. I found out about HSCT accidentally on Facebook. I'm scrolling through and I see a post, just a random post, somebody I wasn't even friends with. And it said, Amy goes ninja on MS. And I'm thinking, that sounds cool. What's this chick about? And it turns out she was a woman from Texas who was heading to Moscow in uh, September of 2012. And I followed her blog. She blogged every single day. And at the time, there were so few resources. And even though there was a Facebook group at the time, I want to say I was like the 200 and something member of the uh, the general HSCT uh, group on Facebook. And now there are over, there are over 10,000 or more, like way more than that. So that just gives you some idea. Back then the resources were so small. And so I was so lucky. I followed her during September and October. And then she was released in uh, November, I believe, because the treatment in, in Moscow is like 30 days. And I applied, I contacted her while she was still there. She talked to Dr. Fedorenko about me. I applied the first week of December and within the week I was accepted for the following April. So that would have been April of 2013. That's how I found out. And I, I, I honestly, I don't know if I had not read her blog, even if I heard of her, but she hadn't blogged, I, I probably wouldn't have done it. I was, she, her, her writing style was so detailed and so fluid and descriptive that I really, I, I just knew in my heart of hearts, there was no question at all. Even after finding out at the time, you know, Chicago offered the treatment and there are other facilities around the world that offer the treatment. Even if money was no object, because at the time I think Chicago was around 250,000 and not all insurances were covering that. Mine was not. They, I even tried just, just out of curiosity and they rejected it. But even if cost wasn't a factor, I still would have wanted to go to Russia. I was that drawn to the story that she had told. You know, I felt like I already knew the staff. And so that's why I ended up going. Yeah. Now, how many treatments did you have before you got to the point where you were like, okay, I need to look into this HSCT stuff. So um, I had been on Jelenia for a few years after my diagnosis on and off. And then uh, in 2015, I did two rounds of Limtrada, so alimtuzumab. So those were my treatments. And things didn't go so well with the last one. And um, I'm in Canada, and things are very different than in the States. So if, if you and your neurologist don't see eye to eye, they pretty much give you like, and it's not every neurologist, they kind of almost give you the death sentence. Basically, 
my neurologist told me that I had transitioned to SPMS and there was nothing that I should do. So I should go by a walker. So that, that's, that was my option that I was given that I can do nothing. And I even asked him about, because in Ottawa they do uh, stem cell and I think now they've, they've not, they're not doing it, but he laughed at me and he said that I did not qualify. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's when you start to get resourceful. (laughs) Start looking at other options. Yep. Wow. I had been on my first drug was beta seron that failed my next was capaxone that failed my next one was and meanwhile in the background all along my neurologist was trying to get me to to try trisabri and i wouldn't do it for at least three years i think he tried to twist my arm to take trisabri and I wouldn't do it because of the risk of PML, which is the infection that can kill you. And I was just like, you know, I, I just wasn't really willing to take the risk. So next thing I did was I got on the Galenia trial when it used to be called Fingolimid. Mm-hmm. And that was a process. I was on that for over a year. I had to go every three months and like I would go through an entire day of six different types of tests in like three different hospitals all in the same couple of blocks. Um, It was exhausting. And that failed. I actually got a huge lesion at the, I want to say it was in the base of my spine or base of my brain. It was just like out of nowhere, like ridiculous. So I stopped that. And in between all of that, my doctor was also trying to get me IVIG, which I was rejected for three times. My insurance wouldn't pay for it. So finally, I caved and took Tysabri. And even though my MRIs were stable, my symptoms were tanking. I mean, I was, it was ridiculous. Like it's, it's one of those things. And you know, when it was like a runaway train, it was like, something's got to give. And at that point I had to, I decided I was going to go off work and I was going to take physical therapy, see how that went. And was, and I was still taking Chai at that time, but it's when I took off to like, take care of myself, see what, what am I going to do next? That's when I discovered Amy and I started following her. And then just one thing after another, I stopped the Thai Sabri in that December when I was um, accepted. And then I had the HSCT in April of 2013. So coming up on eight years ago. So yeah, and plus add in, I don't know if you've ever had, you ever had Solumedrol? Oh, the steroids? Yes, I've had that a few times. Oh yes, me too. And Solumedrol is not my friend not my friend. Let's just say that. (laughs) Which, like, when you were finding out about places, and because Deborah had been there, were were you just all about Mexico, or did you consider other facilities, or it was just Mexico all the way? Um, I think because in in the MS gym, there's so many people that had been to Mexico that I heard about it more than um, Russia, and and obviously Mexico to Canada is a lot closer than 
than Canada to Russia. Right. And you know, there, there are so many different, you know, like Chicago. Uh, Chicago, I know, wouldn't take me. So that wasn't even an option. Um, and then there's just all sorts of different kinds of stem cells all over the world and stuff. Because I think Israel kind of had one. And then because my sister lives in Germany. So then we were thinking about that. But oh. then we were thinking it and it, it looked kind of shady and it wasn't the same kind of stem cell. Yeah. So yeah, everything kind of lined up with Mexico. Cool. So. Yeah. So I mean, I did look at other places. Um, and I had a friend who had, she actually had HSCT in Germany. Um, but it was myeloablative and that's, that's something else we should probably point out. There's two different types of protocols. One's uh, non-myeloablative and one is myeloablative. And the difference is, uh, myeloablative like completely 100% wipes out your immune system and non-myeloablative leaves I I always say it takes out everything but just a skiff just a skiff and at least Dr. Fedorenko in Moscow believes that both of the treatments even though one's more harsh than the other and it's riskier to the patient that the myeloablative that the outcomes of each are the same without, he thinks that non-myeloablative is just as effective um, without the risk to the patient. And recovery time is longer for somebody who's had myeloablative. So we, you and I both had non-myeloablative. That's the protocol in Russia and Mexico. So, but um, I really, it, it was Russia for me all along. So when you were doing this comparison, did you take into consideration at all the number one, the price, obviously the location, you already mentioned the location. I didn't really care that I was going to Russia. I would have gone anywhere and price wise. That's something else I think we should mention the price for this treatment. As I said, in Chicago at the time, it was $250,000, which I really didn't have a jar in the backyard filled with $250,000 for a transplant. But, uh, Moscow at the time was $40,000. Now I think it's the equivalent of 39,500 euro. That's mm -hmm. what they base the price on. So what is the price in Mexico? When I went, it was, uh, five, 54,500 American. Right. So when you, when you translate it, that into Canadian dollars, it, it's a, it's a pretty hefty number for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, and that's something else we should probably mention because I'm sure people are saying, oh my God, where do you come up with that kind of money? And I've seen hundreds of people go and every combination of financing this treatment. Me, I fundraise for it. My husband and I, we were going to take out of his 401k, which nobody ever wants to do. Not when you're in your forties, you know, you wanted to be sitting in there making money until you retire. Um, but we were going to do that. He mentioned that to a friend of his and it, he was like, no. No, you're not going to do that. And luckily, I have a very generous community. And when I say generous, I don't mean I live in a wealthy, I live in the middle of a cornfield, okay, and uh, in rural Pennsylvania. And the entire community came together and raised uh, almost $50,000 toward my treatment. Oh, yeah. And a lot of that, 40000 of that was in one night. So... It can be done. If anybody's out there saying, oh, I'd never be able to. Yes, you can. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed how people will come together. But um, how, look, what did you do? Um, so I did, I did some raising to some for part of it. And I have to say, uh, like Facebook, like I would do updates on Facebook 
And the number of people that wrote in to support me, that people I hadn't talked to in like five to seven years, that they were just, they were friends on Facebook. I was overwhelmed and my parents are overwhelmed by the amount of support that people gave me that hadn't talked to me in five years. Like it, it was, I felt really blessed and very connected because MS can make you feel very disconnected from the rest of the world. So suddenly I felt, I felt so loved on um, by the people. And, you know, obviously it didn't, it didn't, uh, it maybe, maybe a quarter of the price uh, was through that. And then I had some very generous family members that uh, were willing to, to fork over the rest of the expensive cost. So. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I've seen, you know, I've seen people, you know, mortgage their homes. I've seen people sell everything they own, um, any combination of that um, to pay for the treatment because it's that important. I mean, it's that, it's that life-changing or it can be that life-changing. So describe to me your inpatient experience. So you, you get to, to um, Mexico. Number one, here's a, here's a comparison type thing between Russia and Mexico, you have to have a caregiver with you in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that caregiver, and when you say caregiver, that can be, you know, a family friend, a family member, it can be, or you can actually hire a caregiver to go with you, correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay. So who, who went with you? Did somebody go with you? Yeah, so both my parents actually came, and that was, you you mentioned before about the difference between Puebla and Monterrey, the two different facilities in Mexico. Uh, that was why I went with Monterrey over the other one, because I could have two care providers, and oh. I wanted I wanted both my parents there, because they each, they're wonderful, and they each have their own, they have their own strengths and stuff like that, and so that was definitely, that was definitely a no-brainer for me, that I was, I was going to go to Monterey so both my parents could be there with me. That's cool. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And you, you stay in an apartment. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there's kind of two apartment buildings they use. I think it depends on how many people, because there are people come and go every month. So they rent out specific rooms and yeah. So you're in an apartment building. It's a, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful apartment. And the fact that there was, I had both my parents there, like it was, it was a very large apartment, very spacious. And like the, so there's two full bathrooms and, you know, your own kitchen, because that's another difference too in uh, the difference between Puebla and Monterey. In Monterey, you have your own kitchen. So you are responsible for your own food, but they also give you uh, they give you uh, gift cards to go to, to the grocery store. So you can basically cook whatever you want or your caregivers want to make you. Whereas in Puebla, they have a, they have a cafeteria. So um, from what I've heard, they're very uh, catering to people. Uh, so everything's made. So then you don't have the dynamic of that. So, and that was another th- reason I went to Monterey too, because I have a, a limited diet, gluten and dairy free amongst other things. So I was worried that perhaps that wouldn't, uh, that would be harder in a place that already, you know, pre-made food. Interesting. In Moscow, number one, you don't have to take a caregiver with you. The majority of people do have somebody go with them, at least for the beginning portion of the treatment. You are inpatient the entire time. If you do have a caregiver come along, they do have to stay in a hotel. 
Um, you are impatient the entire time, except that during the first week that you're there, it's pre-testing, um, where you get all the pre-testing, and by the end of the week, you know, am I given the go-ahead or not? During that time, many people are in and out of the hospital. They can go back and forth to the hotel. You know, your relatives can come into your room, you know, and meet you there and stay with you during the day if you want. But a lot of people tour around Moscow and go see all the sites, and it's incredible. My mom and I did that. I took my mom with me. She stayed the entire month I was there in the hotel. And at the time, we were the only ones staying. Well, that's not true. There was one other patient there whose wife was staying in the hotel. So we hooked up with her, but now there are all kinds of patients because they've expanded the capacity in Moscow. So lots of family members are at the hotel. They meet up for dinner. Like it's, it's really kind of a bonding experience. Just like in, in Mexico, I know, know a lot of people, families bond and basically make friends for life through this experience. But as I said, because there are a lot of people, you know, you have MS, you have a very low EDSS, you can even still walk completely normally. Maybe you have no mobility aid at all. You can go through the treatment on your own. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of other people, they'll have their family come for that first week where they can be in and out, where they can meet with Dr. Federenko with them, and then they can go home. And then sometimes people will come back at the end and pick them up, you know, and fly back with them. Not everybody, um, but my mom stayed the whole time and she had a wonderful time. She was 72 at the time and pretty much fearless. And they loved her, you know, and she made friends with all the shop owners around the, the hotel and people at the market. And um, so it was a really good experience. So yeah, that was a cool thing. So fine, you're in an apartment. In Moscow, you're inpatient. So I get a headache, I get an ache, I get a pain, whatever. Um, I ring a bell and somebody comes 24-7. How does that work if you're in an apartment outside of the hospital in Mexico? So um, we're well connected. The, the first day you get there, you get in the apartment, there's an, there's an iPhone waiting for you there. And so that's the communication. So all of the, like the doctors are all 24-7 on call. They have quite a few um, assistants you know, that you can reach at any time of the day. And basically that's how they communicate with you is the phone. They send you text messages or, or WhatsApp or whatever, whatever app they're using. And they let you know about your appointments or, you know, when you need to be there, what time the driver's going to be there. And, you know, if you need, if you need assistance getting down, they can come and get you as well. So Everything is totally handled. Like you don't have to think about it. Anything they've already they've done this so much that you know it's just it's just another day for them. Right. You know, like it's a it's, you know it's a life changing experience for the patient, but for them it's just like it's the same routine that they go through every month. So everything is is finely tuned. Like they it's it's all it's all organized. So it's really it takes any of the guesswork out. So you think you know, versus, you know, inpatient or outpatient. But like I said, the doctors are on call 24 seven. So if you have some weird side effects or you're worried about something, uh, you can call any of them and, you know, anyone's willing to come to your apartment to bring you medication or whatever you might need. So you're in a, a, a foreign country. Um, did you feel safe while you were there? 
when you were, let's say when you were out and about in the streets, shopping, grocery shopping, at restaurants, wherever, did you feel safe while you were there? Um, yeah, you did. Because the thing is, the drivers, they would take you to wherever you wanted to. I think on the first day we went to like Costco and then they did, they offered um, a little bit of sightseeing. And I know that some of the other people I went with that were were more mobily free. They totally went out. They had Uber and stuff and they went out to see different sites. So it was never a feeling of not, like it felt, it felt safe there. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't a fearful thing of that. And, and, you know, people here in Mexico and they think, oh, the beach Monterey is, is not like that. It's a highly industrialized city with nonstop traffic. Wow. So it's, it's definitely different than what you would think uh, Mexico is, but you know, the apartments, you always felt safe. Like, the, like I said, they were really, they were pretty high class apartments. And so you, you weren't worried about anything going on there. Awesome. Same with Moscow. You would think, especially with the language barrier, you'd think it might, I, I don't, and I, honestly, I didn't go there thinking it wouldn't be safe. I was kind of, my mind was completely open to whatever, but I always felt that the hotel staff, when we were at the hotel before I went in and then we actually, we kind of did it opposite mom and I, because like you said, you know, I was a 5.5, 6 and there was no way I was going to tour all around the city, end up falling, breaking something, which definitely could have happened. Like, because it was not, I mean, a lot of these places are historic, these, these uh, tourist sites and they're not, they don't have uh, accessible, they're not that accessible and they're not built for people who have mobility issues. Mm -hmm. So I was not going to risk it. So I, we went after I was done with treatment, we stayed an extra week after I was done, exhausted as I was. And we toured around for a week afterward, but we always felt safe and everybody was so nice. And so it was definitely a cultural difference, but I mean, they're, they're very hard working, diligent people. I mean, they truly care. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's somebody who paints lines on the street to a nurse in the hospital, they are, they're, they're very prideful about what they're doing. Um, and it showed. So I appreciated that. So you check in how soon after you arrive in Mexico, do you start the treatment? So uh, we showed up on uh, the Sunday and they took us to, I think we went, they took us to Costco and they took us to the grocery store so we could, you know, get the things that we needed. And Monday, so we show up on Sunday and Monday things start. So Monday is a long day of testing. So they want you to have a certain number of MRIs at home. And in Canada, there's certain MRIs you can't get ordered. So I had to get, um, I think it was my lumbar spine I had to have done there. And so you do blood work, they look at your veins, uh, they, do, they do the MRIs if you haven't done them, they do a test to test your lung function, um, and, and probably kind of like an orientation. So the first day is a really uh, long day. So that's what starts. And then and then because at Monterey, it's, it's kind of a smaller facility. They have less patients as opposed to Parabola. Uh, basically, everyone, day two is the first day of chemo. Okay. So there's no, there's no like, getting, getting your feet wet slowly. It's kind of like you're, 
you're there and you're starting out. So. Wow. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it's much the same, a lot of the same pre-testing that you guys have. It, it usually typically starts on a Monday, same thing. By Wednesday, you probably have all of your tests done and you're given the go. You have what's called the talk with Dr. Fedorenko where he tells you, okay, here's your situation. He, you know, he brings in your MRIs. He's like, here's what we see on your MRIs. And this is our plan of action. And uh, you've been accepted. And then typically treatment stimulation injections uh, start on Thursday night or Friday night, typically. And that is, uh, that's interesting. And they said what they do is they, you're injected. Basically, the stimulation injections start on the Friday, and those are for four days. After the four days, then you, after the four days, then you do what's called apheresis, which you guys do as well, um, which is where they actually collect the stem cells from your body. And in your case, they're stored unfrozen in Moscow. They are frozen and stored. Then you start chemo. We don't do, do the, we, you don't start the chemo in Moscow until after. After the four days of chemo, you have one day of rest. That's to let the kid, that's what they call it. But technically, it's to get the chemo out of your system. The following day is your stem cell transplant. And when they say stem cell transplant, what that means is the stored stem cells are reinserted into your body. So that's stem cell transplant, also known as your stem cell birthday. That's day zero, okay? And I think, you know, everybody concentrates on, oh, it's stem cell treatment, it's stem cell treatment. When in fact, the stem cells help only with recovery. They help to reconstitute the immune system. Chemotherapy is the operative element of this treatment. And I think that's, that kind of gets lost in translation sometimes. Everybody thinks that the magic is in the stem cells when in fact it's in the chemo that ablates the immune system to reset it. So, and then you spend up to, I think the longest I know of is maybe 12 days somebody was in um, isolation before your immune system is, has reconstituted itself enough that you're safe enough to come out of isolation. Mine, I believe, was either, I think mine was seven days, seven or nine. I know it was an odd number, but how long were you in isolation? Um, so things definitely went different in in Mexico. So uh, we did two days of chemo. Like I said, day one was testing. Day two, three is chemo. And then you start the stem cell shots after that. You start the filstrom shots after that point. Um, so I have like a range of, I think, day four to ten, you do the filstrom shots. And they're checking your blood work all the time to see uh, what your stem cell level's at. And then, and then they put the pick line in and then they do the retrieval. They pull your stem cells out. And then after they do that, then you do uh, two more days of chemo. And then the next day they put your, uh, your stem cells back in. And then you, you get the, the stem cell shots again. And that's when, that's when your immunity, like you said, it goes down drastically. And so they're monitoring your blood levels 
and um, making sure that you're okay. And then kind of before you go home, they give you, and I imagine in, in Russia, there's the same, they give you a, a high dose of rituximab before yes. they put you back on the plane to go home. But they make sure that everything, that your immunity is coming back up before they give you the rituximab because rituximab is, is also something that will knock down your immune system. So they don't want to knock it down twice when it's already down. Right. And I think in both facilities, the initial chemo is mainly targeting T cells, whereas rituximab targets B cells. Mm. And as Dr. Fedorenko explained it to me, it's kind of like a one-two punch. First punch being the uh, chemotherapy and the second punch being the rituximab. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So describe to me your pick line, cath line, you know, describe your experience with that. How does that work in, in Mexico? Because okay. that is, let, let's, let's be real. That is the one thing that scares people the most. And when I say what this line is, it's the line where they, it's the line that they use to take your stem cells in and out, your blood work in and out. Um, but it's, it's invasive, but it's not as bad as people might think, but it is the probably number one thing that people are most scared about that and the chemo. So what was your experience? Mm. So, so yes, no, the pick line thing, I had heard enough horror stories about the, the worst things happening, like a pneumothorax. So I was, I was really, I was really anxious about that. Like that, that was gnawing at me, like on day one of the testing. And, and they said, they said, we've actually changed things. They said, normally they put it in uh, your subclavian vessel, but in Monterey, they switch it. So they actually put it in your jugular vein so that at that point, there's no risk of giving, puncturing your lung. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, so you, in that way, it's easier, but because it's higher up in your neck, when they, uh, when they tape you back up to kind of immobilize the joint, it, it was very difficult. As long as that pick line was in, it was really hard to move around, especially, um, I always refer to my neck as my, my third leg. It helps me get around. And so having my, having my neck taped up and I can't move it, it made it very hard to even turn over in bed or get out of a chair. Yeah. So that was definitely, I, I agree. Chemo was like a walk in the park compared to, for myself anyway, I know some people have yeah. a different, a different view, but the pick line was definitely the, the thing that I dreaded most for yeah. sure. Yeah. So. I, same here. My experience was not too bad. It was probably the only time that I cried during the treatment. And when I say cry, it wasn't like sobbing cry. It was a tear falling out of my eye when they're putting it in. They say, look the other way. Um, and Dr. Fedorenko was holding my hand, <laughs> which was pretty cool. But it happened so quickly. Now, I had a subclavian. And since that time, at, at the time, some people were getting subclavian, some people were getting jugular. And not long after I left, they got a new doctor, surgeon, or whoever was doing them. They didn't want to do subclavians because of that very reason. And I could have had jugular, and I specifically asked for subclavian. And they gave it to me, 
There was just something about the jugular. I, I couldn't wrap my head around it and it was freaking me out. And it was, as far as convenience goes, I 100%, it was more convenient than the jugular. It was just easier to manage. I wasn't always in your way. Sometimes I pretty much forgot about it. And right after I had it for the next, I want to say 24 hours, I had a very, very full feeling in my like stomach and chest. I just felt like I was like pumped up and like concrete. It was the strangest sensation. It was not painful. It was just awkward. And then boom, it was, it was done. And I didn't have it taken out until I left until right shortly before I left. So yeah, the pick line, <laughs> what was the, um, what was the next scariest thing for you? Like after the pick line, like, well, no, let's not say scariest. What was the hardest part of the treatment for you? Um, most challenging. Okay. So the, the, the pick line, definitely like, like you, no, sorry. Unlike you, I was terrified because we were sitting in, it was kind of like a hospital uh, clinic where they were putting the pick line because they actually put you under full anesthesia. I don't know whether they did that for you. No, as well. they don't. But we're sitting in the thing and I, I'm watching all my, not colleagues, but my fellow STEM, stem cell sisters going in. And by that point, I had myself so worked up. So I, they took me to the back room. I was already totally sobbing. And my mom was there holding my hand and the guy came in to, to tell me about it or whatever. And he wanted to, like, he's going to put the IV in. And at that point I, I couldn't even look at him. I just, I was so like, I had worked myself up so much and he was so kind. He, he even gave me like uh, an injection before he put the IV in my hand and and then it was and then I was gone. Like I don't remember. I just remember being hysterical, and then and then it was over. <laughs> so, but I had worked myself up so much to this. And the thing is, I I do not like needles. So this procedure was not just the pick line, but the number of times I got poked for someone who does not like needles. Yeah, that was, that was definitely the hardest the hardest part for me. And so the pick line was not good. And then. Um, a lot of one of the the things too about um the in like when you're in an apartment they actually come to you you don't have to go to them to to get things so the doctors uh would come in and take your blood work in the apartment like everything they cater to you a lot especially when your immune system was kind of compromised so they'd come in and they do your your stem cell they do your some shots in the room and everything so it's it was comfortable in that you could my mom and I had like a, a routine sort of she'd get the ice pack ready when we heard the knock on the door so I get myself kind of like ready but uh, one thing and this might seem trivial um I have I have ring nods in my in my hands and so they would sometimes do a finger prick to get your blood and they thought it was less painful but it was actually worse because when you have ring nods you're not really getting the blood the same way you, so they kept stabbing my fingers oh. and to the point that I have bruises on my fingertips and they weren't getting the blood. So we finally figured that one out. And so they started actually taking it from my, you know, from my arm instead. So, wow. So all the, all the pokes were hard. And, and I know other people that have no qualms about needles. Like it was no big deal. It was just, it was just another Monday for them. So. Yeah. Yeah. The pick line was the scariest thing for me. And I, I would, I honestly, it probably was the hardest 
because I think everything after that seems so much easier mm. and so much less scary. Even the chemo. Like, what was your experience with the chemo? Like, I seriously, I did not have, I had hardly any issues at all. I think my eyes got glassy, so my vision got kind of like glassy. I felt like my eyes were gunky, like they were just gunking up. And of course, there was a running back and forth to the bathroom 24-7 with a, a pole because they're pumping you full of so many fluids, at least in Moscow. Like it was just fluids, 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 fluids. But as far as being hard, it really, and at this point, you know, you're talking to somebody who's already been on however many drugs, including Solumedrol, not my friend, and Tysabri, which was a monthly infusion. Like we've already been through like so much. Like a lot of these things are just kind of like different day, same stuff, maybe different drug. But it's not like brand spanking new that you're being hooked up to all these things. So, and I always had the end game in mind. So it was like, whatever, shoot me up stab me. I don't care. <laughs> Just get rid of my MS. But yeah, I, I really, and I know a lot of people struggle. Some people, not a lot. I shouldn't say a lot. I think a lot of people are surprised with it not being as difficult as they thought. And it depends. It depends. And I've said this a million times and I stand by it today after watching literally hundreds and hundreds of people go through this. Your attitude going in, it weighs heavily on how your experience will be. Mm -hmm. It just will. And it does. If you're a negative Nelly, just in regular life, it is not going to serve you during treatment. I can tell you that. If you're positive, it is going to help you. That doesn't mean that it can't challenge even the most positive, but it definitely makes a difference. I think so. Like what was your attitude going in? Um, yeah, I think that, I think, like I said, I had a lot because I had heard enough horror stories about the pick line. So that was <laughs> on the forefront of my mind, but I had a really good uh, support base going in. Like having both my parents there was amazing. Uh, and even I had people like I'm well connected within the MS gym. So I had people uh, writing to me every day because they, they, you, they give you amazing Wi-Fi in your room. Like you have, you're so connected to everything. Yeah. So I, didn't, I did not feel alone or isolated. And I even, you know, I had lots of friends that had had stem cell already. So I, you know, if I was unsure about something, I bounce a message back to them and they say, yes. okay, you're going to get through. Just be kind to yourself. It's just for a season. And so I had a lot of positive people around me and stuff. And just having that, you know, having the support of my family, like having my parents there. And it was hard because my husband was at home, but because of his own medical conditions and stuff, it wasn't feasible for him to come with me yeah. to actually be a caregiver for me. Um, so it was, it was, it helped having my parents there. And I know that there's quite a few other people that in that go to Mexico, they don't, they hire a caregiver, which, which can be fantastic because a lot of them are nurses. So they know exactly what to do um, for myself from an emotional standpoint I needed I needed my parents there I needed them to be strong for me and I needed my mom there yeah. you know when I was having hard days and stuff like that but I I didn't I didn't feel alone and I didn't feel isolated so and I was and I was so grateful to be getting the treatment and everyone that helped make that possible yes I same absolutely same I I was every night I would stare up at the ceilings and be like 
thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that I'm here, you know, I just, oh yeah, like that gratitude has a lot to do with it because not everybody can get the treatment, you know, not everybody qualifies, um, and, not, and that, that's something that, that we should mention. In Mexico, we talked earlier about the EDSS and it goes from zero to 10. In Mexico, they will accept an EDSS of up to what, is it eight? I think it's eight, yes. Okay, and that is wheelchair user, correct? Uh, it might be more than, it might be more than that. I think it might be more wheelchair user spends most of the time in bed, I think. Okay, okay. In so. Moscow, they only accept up to 6.5. Oh, wow, well maybe maybe that would have been another reason too because if because I know that different places label things differently so perhaps they would have seen me higher than a 6.5 in, in Russia then too so yeah if you are 100% reliant upon a wheelchair you are less likely to get accepted to Moscow mm -hmm. um, if you and they do make exceptions to that but they do make exceptions they have made exceptions if you're somebody you know you might be somebody let's say your wait to get in is six months and you're at a 6.5 when you apply and get accepted and by the time you get there you are then re relying on a wheelchair they're not going to reject you you know they're mm. not going to say oh no so yeah there is a little bit of wiggle room there but technically 6.5 is the cutoff in mm. moscow so something oh I mean, let's move into recovery so you finish your treatment you go home did you have a worsening of your symptoms immediately after transplant? I would, I would say no in that regards. Um, I was very weak after, right? Um, because yeah. of everything they put you through, you go, it forces you into a, a full on anemia. So I remember even like the few days before they sent me home, I remember my, my parents and we had so much fun. Uh, we did puzzles all the time. We had so much fun doing that. But I remember sitting at the table and I'd be there for like five or 10 minutes. I'm like, I have to go lay down. I was just so exhausted from being anemic. Like you just have zero energy. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was like, that's what it was like for, you know, even the first few weeks after, you know, getting home and it's a whole new schedule. Suddenly you're home and then, you know, in Canada, uh, in no, mid-November, the cold weather was there and you're not used to having no hair. Like there's adjustments, but, um, you know, they talk about, and I don't know if you're going to address this later, they talk about this kind of this roller coaster with stem cell. And I don't, yeah, I don't feel like I ever, you know, went through uh, a massive roller coaster. Obviously some days uh, were better than others, um, but I didn't necessarily have the feel like the worsening of symptoms too much myself. Right. I did not have that. Now, the exhaustion part, and as I said, my mom and I stayed a week after, and I specifically remember one day in the hotel, we were getting ready to go out somewhere to some tourist site, and mom is sitting there, and all of a sudden, I said to her, I, she's talking to me, I'm looking her right in the eye, and I'm like, just, much like you, playing, playing, doing puzzles, I said, I just need to put my head down for a second. <laughs> Two hours later, I woke up and she's there and I could tell by where the sun was in the sky. I'm like, how long have I been to sleep? She's like, two hours. <laughs> and it would be like that. I, and it was like that after I got home for about two weeks hmm. where I would just be 
perfectly fine. And then I'd be like, I just need to lay down. But that eventually went away. But I did not have, I did not have a lot of the worsening of symptoms that, that a lot of people talk about. But it, it's definitely a real thing. I think what happens is people get their treatment and they're like, oh my God, my symptoms are worse. It didn't work. Well, that's not true. It's just part of recovery. And that can go on for six to 12 months where things ebb and flow. And same with your blood work. Apparently your blood work's not, until you're like a year out, your blood work may not even stabilize. So there's no need to freak out about that either. But I think now, did you do physical therapy as soon as you got home or how did you do physical therapy at all? And when did you start? Um, I didn't, I, because of my involvement in the MS gym and I kind of have a, a lifeline to Trevor. So he, he coached me a lot. Um, so I didn't really have physical therapy. Um, I had one person kind of through a government thing. She was seeing me just before my stem cells. She saw me for like a day after, but I showed her the things I was doing and he said, okay, well, wait till, you know, wait till you make sure that you're, you're out of anemia before you do anything too intense. And she basically totally thought what I was doing in the MS gym was exactly what I needed to do. So oh. that's what, that's what I kept on. Even, you know, there was some days even in, in, uh, in Mexico where exercise was the last thing on my mind, especially with that awful thing in my neck. Yeah. But you know, there, there's so many seated programs like there's so many options that I always had something I could do even just to move my body a little bit. So. See, I didn't, I mean, mine was way before the MS gym mm -hmm. because it's 2013. I started physical therapy a month, month and a half after I got back and basically met all my goals within seven months. And then I did a lot of the stuff that I did at the, the therapy place at home. But I think it's important that People who have had HSCT, when they hear about the MS gym and they think, well, you know, I had HSCT, so I shouldn't need the MS gym. Well, yet you need the MS gym more now than ever. Mm -hmm. And especially now in a, an era of COVID where you can't, it's not particularly safe to go to a physical therapy facility or a gym or wherever to have the MS gym as a resource online is is like a gift like an absolute gift and they're from every level of recovery there's some value to be found within the ms gym so as somebody who's been there done that and now that i know what the ms gym offers i wish it had been there right after i had my transplant but you can definitely rely on it 100% so anybody who's out there or maybe you're brand new out of a uh, transplant definitely give them a, a look um, I think something and that that's the thing I want to make sure that people know one of the myths of HSCT is that people might think that HSCT is going to fix everything and somebody who walked in as a 6.5 using a trekking pole or two trekking poles or a walker is gonna like skip out of the hospital and they're never gonna have to use a, a mobility device and they're never gonna have any more symptoms. And that's just not the case. The, the goal of HSCT is to halt the progression. Anything in addition to that that you might see 
in improvement is a bonus. You know, it's a gift. And I highly recommend to anybody going into the treatment that they are good with that before they go in. Because I know a lot of people who've been disappointed, like, what do you mean I still have to use a walker? What do you mean, you know? However, that might be all they ever have to have. They may never have to use a wheelchair. Or if you're in a wheelchair, you might not end up work. Like, it's all about halting everything where it's at, which all the drugs today can't promise you that. Um, they're all about slowing the progression. And slowing it is just not enough a lot of times. So. I think that's important that people know you're not going to come out there. Now, obviously, the earlier in the progression of your, the traje trajectory of your disease, earlier is better. Earlier, statistically, has a higher rate of success, meaning that a higher reversal of symptoms or a longer lasting halting of progression or just all around earlier is better, but that does not mean that it's not successful. I, you know, I know someone in particular who was between a 5.5 and a six and she had all kinds of problems. Well, now she's traveling unaided all over the world. I mean, it does happen. So I think uh, my final question, Jody, to you would be if you had, well, two things, two things. If you had to do it all over again, would you? And what advice would you give to someone who's researching HSCT or somebody who's newly out of HSCT? Like, what would you be saying to those people about HSCT? So, you know, that, that's a tricky, that's a tricky game with, with MS because you always, you always second guess your decisions, right? You think, Oh, should I do that treatment? Should I do that? Should I have done that? Should I have done that? You know, if I, should I have tried this for longer? So there, you know what, there's no way of, there's no way of saying like, we can't, we can't know what would have happened if we had chosen a different path. But no, I don't. I think when you talk about, you know, you had at one point in your disease, you had this downward spiral. And that was what was happening for me before I went into my stem. So I was having a downward spiral. I felt like I was getting quick, very, very quickly, or sorry, I was getting worse very quickly. And like I said, there was no real treatment options for me. So I think from, you know, from a mental and emotional standpoint, I think it was important that I, that I went and did the stem cell because I was feeling very powerless that I was, I felt like a, that I had no control over anything that I was completely powerless, that I was, you know, just watching myself fade away. And so for that, you know, I'm, I'm glad uh, that I did that. And, you know, I mentioned when I first heard about stem cell, like it was, it wasn't on my radar because I, I was I was struggling at work at that point when I first heard of it in 2017, but uh, it seemed it seemed extreme and it seemed expensive. But looking back, you know, you always think, oh, what if I had done that? Like I totally agree with what you said about, you know, the earlier you go in the disease, the better chance you have, and and that would be definitely advice. Like don't wait until you get too bad where you leave this as your last option. I'm like, yes, man, I wish I hadn't, you know, had that mindset. And I know even like some people with Tysavery and stuff, like they think, you know, before, before stem cell was really big, people would think, well, I'm not going to go on Tysavery because of the, you know, the complications. And certainly there are other medications that, you know, Lemtrada and Ocrevus and stuff that, um, that are out there. Right. Um, but you just never know. It just takes one, 
it just takes one relapse. It can just take one moment for everything to change for you. And that's, you know, that's what happened. Me switching medications and one minute I was jogging and the next everything changed in my life. Yeah. Like, and so you never know that. So that, you know, the idea, oh, well, when, it, when things get bad enough, then I, then I'll wait. But the thing is things can get bad enough, but you don't know if you're going to come back from that. So uh, that's definitely advice. Like obviously you have to do a lot of soul searching yourself because it is a, it's a huge financial commitment is, and it's a, it's a huge decision to make, right? Like it's a, it's a big deal, the procedure. Um, so do your research on like Facebook groups. There are so many Facebook groups out there and I would really do your research. Uh, we talked a, few, a bit about the different kinds of stem cells, but there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of con jobs out there too. Yeah. And there's people that have all these fake stem cell stuff and you know ones that oh well this is only five thousand dollars and it will take your fat cells right do your research about it and don't don't think just because it's cheaper uh that it's better so you know don't get conned in that aspect reach out to other people um and find out um you know what it is that you're going in for um, and if it doesn't include chemotherapy, it's not HSCT. Yeah. It's not what we're talking about. So if you're looking at one of those scamish type stem cell facilities and there's no chemo included, it's, it's not for you. Mm -hmm. One other thing I would say too, for the people that are, are going in, you know, soon or already there, uh, be kind to yourself. I had to keep reminding myself and I was so grateful for some of the veterans that I had kind of on tap on, you know, on the internet. It is for a time. It is for a time. There's some days you get poked and prodded and they give you like, I don't even know how many pills some days. It was ridiculous. And I wasn't keeping up with my regular eating the way I went. It, it's for a time. It's for a set time. Like don't get overwhelmed and think that everything's going to go to putt because you're not keeping with your regular lifestyle. It's so important to, to take one day at a time and not, not uh, get ahead of yourself in that regard. So be kind to yourself during that time. It's hard on your body. It's hard on your emotions. It's hard on everything. So, so have patient, have compassion with yourself. Absolutely. I agree. 100%. Honestly, I don't know if I could, I can, uh, I can only add a few things to that, but you pretty much covered it all, really. W one thing which you touched on there at the end is patience, for sure. When you're in recovery, patience is everything. And I know you want this to be fixed, that to be fixed, and that's the other thing, any improvements that you might see. Some people are still seeing improvements at two plus years out. Mm -hmm. There really is no gauge there's no switch that you can flip on and off that says, okay, now you're done recovering. It, it just doesn't work like that. It takes your body a long time to heal. And some people heal faster than others. And recovery for everybody is 100%. Please, please, please don't compare. Com the comparison game in recovery oh, is lethal. Um, for instance, you know, I saw the woman that I spoke of earlier, she was the same EDSS as me, and she went from using a walker to, you know, zipping all over the planet. So, you know, you want to say, I want that to be me. I promised myself I would not do that, and, and I really didn't. And going into treatment, and this is the biggest piece of advice I have 
for people going into treatment is go into the treatment not expecting anything else but halting the, the mm. disease. Because if you do, you are setting yourself up for a big disappointment, if not immediate disappointment, down the road. Because your immediate disappointment might be, oh, this isn't fixed or that symptom's still here. And that symptom a year from after treatment may be completely gone. So you really need to be patient. The other thing is HSCT, as much as I've been shouting about it from the mountaintops for the last eight years, it's not for everyone. It is, it's an intensive therapy. And, you know, an, another thing is people think that it's experimental. It's not really experimental. Um, they've been using, on, on a whole, they've been using the exact same treatment for cancer patients for decades. It's not experimental. In the United States, it might be in trials and therefore considered experimental. But in the whole scheme of things, HSCT itself is not experimental. So don't let that the whole experimental thing scare you away. I mean, it's the same type of treatment they give to cancer patients. So don't be afraid of that. But it, it is, it's harsh, but so are some MS drugs. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, you just, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, but it could be for everybody. You know, that's the goal, that everybody will be offered this as a first-line treatment or at least in the uh, in line with all the other choices, all the other drugs. They'll be, oh, you can do these drugs. I want, I want to be able to walk in there and say, they say to a, a new MS patient, well, you can take this drug, this drug, this drug, or this drug, or you can have HSCT now. <laughs> but whether that ever happens, I don't know. And, of course, we all hope for something – uh, you know, something someday that's absolutely doesn't include chemotherapy, that it is just a drug that, boom, you know, takes care of everything. But for now, HSCT is the most effective and the only one that is designed to halt rather than slow progression. So, and I have absolutely no regrets. Do you regret doing it, Jody? No, I don't. I don't regret having done it from, like I said, from an emotional uh, standpoint for sure not because it gives you a lot of hope knowing that you've fought this beast with the hardest thing that you can fight it with yes yes like there's no you will never question whether you did enough yeah right? that's, that's exactly it yeah well Jody, I am so excited you came on um, and this will be the first of many more conversations that we'll have about different topics if anybody has any questions we're gonna put links to um, the different facilities in the episode notes and maybe a link to the description on the MS Society website. And we uh, hope that you gain something from this. So Jody, thank you so much. And I look forward to your next episode um, on the MS Gym podcast. And I'm so excited to have you on the team. So thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you, Brooke. I'm so glad to be here with you today. And to learn more about, you know, your procedure as well and just hear the differences between the two. So I'm excited, you know, for the, for the listeners to, to learn more about it and to hear firsthand, right, from people that have had it done as opposed to just hearing hypothetical situations, right? And, yes. and there are so many people, especially in the MS gym, that have had it done. Like there's 
there's such a, a resource of information out there. So, so yeah. do your research, listen, and uh, make, make a decision, be confident about your decision, and, you know, fight, fight that beast as hard as you can. Awesome. For more information on the MS Gym, check them out at themsgym.com, on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can find me at brookslick.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of the MS Gym Podcast.